Some years ago, the Montana Historical Conference had the good fortune of hearing a presentation by Carlos Suantes. Dr. Suantes had published a recent book, uh, 1998, A Long Day's Journey on Travel in the West Before the Arrival of the Railroad. Suantes' book banished forever the idyllic mental pictures we all had from watching TV. Steamboats cruising along on America's great rivers, usually with Brett Maverick in the parlor playing poker. Stagecoaches racing down well-groomed dirt roads with passengers, of course, in their best clothes, unmarked by dust or disturbed by bumps in the road. Or maybe Josh Randall, remember him? The young Steve McQueen, traveling by horseback, his only luggage a small bedroll uh, tied to the back of his saddle. No provision for water or food for himself or the horse. Stagecoaches, they were dusty, they were crowded, uh, the roads they traveled were rugged in dry weather or rugged in wet weather, impassable in winter. Steamboats were much better for comfort, but were much worse for safety. The wooden steamboat hulls were like eggshells. If you hit a floating log or a snag or a shallow bottom, the boat sank. If you managed to avoid those hazards, there was always a chance of a mechanical breakdown or a boiler explosion. We had one of those in Cincinnati in 1837. A brand new boat, one month old, known for speed, just pulled out from the landing in Cincinnati and it blew up. Scattering bodies over both shores of the Ohio River as well as in the river. The new era of travel in the western United States began in 1869, 150 years ago, with the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad from Chicago to Sacramento. For the people of Omaha or Salt Lake City, the new railroad meant that the East Coast where California was not months away, but days away. It meant that West Virginia and Illinois coal was available for heating homes and running industries. It meant that cattle, grain, and ore could be shipped to markets many miles away. Fortunately, the new Transcontinental Railroad, the Union Pacific, Central Pacific, did not run through Montana. The Montana story begins 11 years later, September 10th, 1880. On that date, the Logan leader, apparently Logan is in Utah. There's a Logan in Montana too, but it's not big enough to have a newspaper. But the Logan leader reported that the rails of the Utah and Northern Railroad had crossed Monida Pass and entered Montana. Our first railroad, 1880. It was a year later, on December 21st, 1881, that the first passenger train rolled into Butte, Montana from Ogden. Utah. The first transcontinental railroad to serve Montana from east to west arrived in 1883. It was the Northern Pacific, and it connected St. Paul with Tacoma by way of Billings, Livingston, Bozeman, Helena, and Missoula. Today you can trace the same route in your car on I-94 and I-90, except that neither one of them goes through Helena. The whole state, the whole country, used to be served by passenger trains. Every town of any size had one or two trains a day stopping to deliver mail and packages and to pick up riders for the next big city or the next 
town down the line. There used to be two or three classes of passenger service. At the bottom of the list was the local, a daily train of three or four cars connecting towns. The southbound local, for example, from Haver, train number 236 might make stops at Big Sandy, Fort Benton, and Loma before reaching Great Falls. And then half a dozen more stops before reaching Helena, and another half dozen stops before its final destination, Butte. The local trains were not classy, the coaches were old and weary, there might be flat spots on the wheels and worn seat covers, and those strange plumbing facilities down at the end of the hall that emptied onto the tracks. When you flushed, you could look down and see the tides going by under the train. And they were not fast. There was mail and parcels to be loaded at every stop. In dairy regions, dozens of milk cans had to be loaded into the baggage car and empties unloaded. In an era of dirt roads and Model T Fords, the local train was the only way to travel. Of course, when you got to the big city, you could connect to another train or even another railroad to take you to Chicago or Seattle. Often the locals were more accurately called mixed trains. They were freight trains with one passenger car on the back. They made stops only, not only at the depot for passengers, mail and parcels, but also out in the rail yard for freight car pickup and delivery on the switching going on. In addition to the scheduled stops on the typical local train, there was a certain number of flag stops. There were towns that had a depot but the passenger train did not make a scheduled stop there. At the flag stop, you bought your ticket from the station master and you put up an order board, which was a semaphore signal, uh, to tell the engineer on the next train that you wanted to get, take a ride. The engineer would stop to let you get on. Try that on Delta Airlines. <laughs> Just tell the man at the airport that you want to go to Spokane and tell him to stop the next airliner that passes over. Most fascinating a passenger service would be the possibility of riding in the caboose. Probably didn't happen very often, but there used to be a way of buying a ticket for a freight train, probably at the point of origin, riding in a crew car you know, with the conductor and the rear end breaker. I've never heard of anyone who did it, but I have seen the reference in an old Great Northern employee's timetable. At the top of the list, the pride of the line. Train that you read about all the time or see on television or on YouTube, the first class passenger train. The Great Northern, that would be the Empire Building. The Northern Pacific, the North Coast Limited. The Milwaukee Road, the Olympian, Hiawatha. These trains made only a limited number of stops in larger cities and they were known chiefly for their hot schedule from St. Paul to Seattle. Naturally, there was intense competition between the railroads for passengers on these trains. The limiteds were also the luxury trains of their day. They featured compartments and bedrooms. After 1945, they also featured dome cars for better viewing in the mountains, dining cars with linen tablecloths and napkins, cut flowers at every table, menus with many choices, and waiters in white coats. The best trains always had a club car where you could enjoy a cold drink and a snack. And beginning in the 1930s, air conditioning. The earlier generation of Pullman sleeping cars had sections. During the day, the cars had seats that were alternating 
facing forward and facing backwards. And at night, the seats folded down and became full-length beds with a mattress laid on them, the lower berth, that was called. Just above was the upper berth, a large shelf that folded down from the ceiling. The upper berth was cheaper, but you needed a ladder to get in and out, and there was no window. For individual privacy, there was always curtains separating the, the berths from the aisle. Hollywood made dozens of movies that featured sleeping cars with upper and lower berths. Among them, Cat Blue and Some Like It Hot. Here's a newspaper description of the new sleeping cars on the Butte Special, the train that ran from Salt Lake City to Butte in 1880. These cars are beauties, and the interior arrangements magnificent. The interior of each car has 10 sections, containing, of course, 20 beds. The sides, besides having mirrors inserted in each section, are of fine woods, mahogany finish, beautifully inlaid with figures of flowers, etc. Different portions of the car were mounted with German silver, the door handles, the hinges, and in fact, every metal part of the car is of this composition. German silver was not silver. It was an alloy of copper, nickel, and zinc. At one end of the cars are marble-topped washstands and reservoirs with silver-plated appurtenance. So well is this arranged that every inch of room is utilized for some useful purpose. I'm sure that the Butte Special would be called a local. It made stops in Silverbow, Melrose, Dillon, Armstead, and Lima in Montana, and then stops in Spencer, Dubois, Idaho Falls, Blackfoot, Pocatello, and Ogden, before finally reaching Salt Lake City. The train had many first-class features. The coaches had reclining seats. There were sleeping cars and a small diner for the Pullman passengers. The Butte Special ran for 90 years, from 1880 to 1970. I don't know what to call the other mainline passenger trains. They may have been secondary or other. Secondary trains were not necessarily second class. They had names, like the first class brothers, the Northern Pacific Main Streeter, Milwaukee Road, Columbia. And there were important service providers, as they stopped at the middle sized towns that were overlooked by the limiteds. The Empire Builder, for example, didn't stop at Great Falls, or even Glacier Park, which the Great Northern's Western Star that brought tourists to Glacier. Well, the Builder hurried on through without stopping. With the opening of Yellowstone National Park, the railroads got serious about Montana tourism. The Northern Pacific was first to put in a line from Livingston down to Gardner uh, at the north entrance to Yellowstone Park. Within a few years, three other railroads had built lines up to the park boundary. Over the years, several U.S. presidents had visited Montana by train. The famous Roosevelt Arch at Gardner was dedicated by Teddy Roosevelt in 1903. As it turned out, Teddy went on his way to Yellowstone for a camping trip that included sleigh rides and skiing. And since the president just happened to be in the neighborhood, they asked him to speak at the dedication ceremony. Near as I can tell, he was the first president to visit Montana. In 1883, i.e. 18 years earlier, President Grant had come to Gold Creek, Montana, for the famous driving of the last spike on the Northern Pacific. But I think at the time, he was no longer president. Franklin D. Roosevelt visited Glacier Park in 1932 after the opening of Going to the Sun Road. He stopped at Two Medicine Chalet long enough to make one of his famous fireside chats, then hurried away back to 
Washington, D.C. Must have been an exciting tour for the president. In those early days, there were no guardrails on going to the Sun Road. My favorite story took place during President Truman's famous whistle stop tour, 1948, in Missoula. The presidential train had stopped. Crowd had gathered at the Northern Pacific Station, but the train had been running late. It was after 11 p.m., and no one had told Truman that there would be a stop in, in Missoula. The president had retired for the night. When the train stopped, and a presidential aide saw the crowd outside on the platform, he woke the president. Truman appeared on the rear platform of his observation car in his pajamas and bathrobe and slippers. <laughs> Great story. All of this is now history. On May 1st, 1971, the National Rail Passenger Corporation took over almost all the passenger train operation in the United States. The corporation is called Amtrak. Last year, Amtrak carried 32.5 million riders, not all of them from Montana. For the first 10 years or so, Amtrak service in Montana was provided by hand-me-down locomotives and passenger trains that were purchased from the railroads that had previously provided passenger service. Then, in 1979, the Pullman Company began delivering new superliners, and the old cars were retired. In the 70s, there were two Amtrak trains running across Montana. In addition to the Empire Builder, they ran across what they called the High Line, there was also a train called the North Coast Hiawatha, and the North Coast Hiawatha followed the route of the Northern Pacific. It stops in Glendive, Miles City, Forsyth, Billings, Livingston, Bozeman, Butte, Deer Lodge, Missoula, and Paradise. When Amtrak decided to drop one of these two trains, the decision to drop the North Coast Hiawatha was partly based on the fact that the cities on the low line had better airline service and an interstate highway. Theoretically, the loss of passenger train service would be less of a burden for them. The High Line, of course, ran also into Glacier Park and added consideration. The superliner cars that began arriving in 1979 were R, stainless steel, they're about 80 feet long and 20 feet high, with double-deckers with entry at the track level and coach seats up on the second level. Your carry-on baggage goes into a large shelf section on the lower level, or half a dozen bathrooms also on the lower level. The upper level, the seats are just like airplane seats, uh, two on either side of the aisle, about 20 rows. The windows are the size of your kitchen table, uh, nothing like the tiny windows on 737. The seats are wide enough to hold all of you. Enough leg room to stretch out and put your feet up on the footrest. Front of the seats raised to support your legs. The back of the seat reclines just like your lazy boy at home. The dining cars feature tables for four, huge windows, five entrees on the menu, and even optional beer and wine with your meal. Some people complain about the microwave food, but I, I eat microwave food at home every day. Amtrak steak, those ship it tastes pretty good to me. In first class, most of the rooms are small, basically the size of two easy chairs facing each other with one or two feet of floor space between. Of course, another one of those huge windows. Each compartment has a curtain and a sliding glass door to give you complete privacy if you want it. My first ride on the Amtrak Empire Builder was in 1981. It turned out my mom was cousin to the wife of the engineer, so I got invited to ride in the engine cab. 
Since then, I've come to Montana 20, 25 times on the Empire Builder, including 2019. I came out on a conference the day before yesterday on number seven. That often cut bank and came to have an intervention car. When the politicians in Washington, D.C. start talking about the national budget, the subject of Amtrak always comes up, and a congressman from New York or Chicago always questions why the taxpayer has to pay for a train in Montana. Don't worry. Congressman from Montana always gets up and mentions the number of Amtrak trains that run in New York or Illinois at taxpayer expense. And things quickly quiet down. Be sure to let Congressman Greg Genforte know how you feel about taking the train. And be sure to put the Empire Builder on your bucket list. And as Howard Purcell used to say, let's go to the videotape. Thank you, Greg.